Welcome to the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. This is a show about pushing through obstacles and hard times in order to live a happy and fulfilled life. I'm your host, Ted Fayton, and it's a pleasure to have you joining us. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's grow. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. Thanks for joining us today. As always, we appreciate the time. And as always, a shout out to my executive producer, Andre Settles, Subtle Solution Media, for helping to make this podcast possible. We have a great episode in store today because it's all about searching within. A lot of times with the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast, we talk about the elements without the rain that gets us wet. But I think we have the perfect person to tell his story, his journey with us, former professional golfer, athlete, and really someone who had a huge introspective journey. Allow me to introduce Mark Moskowitz to the podcast. Mark, we appreciate you being on the call. Thanks so much for having me. I love the name, No Rain, No Rainbow. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think a lot of us go through it in life. And, you know, we don't like the rain, we don't enjoy the storms, but really, they're kind of the, the things that give us some of the fruits in our lives. But before we hop into kind of some of your journey and some of the lessons that you've learned along the way, I'd love to give you an opportunity to first get acquainted with some of our audience, our audience to get acquainted with you and give you the floor just to kind of introduce yourself in your own words. Sure. Thanks, Ted. Uh, so my name is Mark Moskowitz and, you know, my life has been all, I've been on the mountaintop and I've been way down in the valley. So I've really kind of seen it all in my life. And, you know, it's been a crazy journey. I, I worked in finance for 28 years. I worked for a large bank and then I also managed my own hedge fund for 15 of those years. And it was a wonderful ride for a long time. And through some of my through some of my downfall, you know, I really hit some emotional slides, and you know, ultimately ended up going to federal prison for uh, one count of wire fraud, which is a kind way of saying I stole some money from one of the funds I was managing. But it was it was within those walls, it was within that physical prison that I was able to release myself from the emotional and mental prison that I had struggled with for so long. Yeah, and I'm just telling my journey through through a book that I'm writing, which is called Within. How I found my happy and authentic self in federal prison. I do speeches and I'm and I'm a personal performance coach. Nice. And I think a lot of us, we know what it feels like being in the valley of the mountains. But let's talk about your first climb to the mountaintop, because a lot of times when you see the view at the top, it makes the feeling at the base that much harder to kind of, I guess, accept. So what was the journey like when you first made it up towards the mountaintop? I know professional golfer for a year before you started getting into the finances and managing that hedge fund. What was that period like? What was that mark like? And how did it lead to, I guess, the eventual, I guess, imprisonment? Yeah, you know, and it's so funny because when you look back on your life and you are in prison, you see things with a much different perspective than as you're going into it, when you're in it, when you're in going through it, you know. I grew up in a family that had money. You know, we, we did well. My father was on Wall Street. You know, my mother was home and with the kids. And I grew up with some level of emotional neglect. You know, my father worked very hard and my mother kind of did her thing. And there were three of us and I was the youngest and I was kind of the one who was left to his own devices. So I think that scarred me quite a bit growing up. And, you know, after college, you know, my father was a great golfer. So I learned how to play golf. Went to Northeastern University. And after that, I played golf uh, down in Orlando for a year. 
And I realized that even though I was really good for New Jersey, I was really not so good for the rest of the world. <laughs> Made that known pretty quickly and then figured, let's go for finance. That's what my dad did. I had some connections in the world, so I figured I'd get into it. And it was a nice steady climb, you know, despite having some of this emotional neglect, you know, my parents did bring me up with the work ethic that was really second to none. You know, I was first one in, last one out, you know, in the office. And in the world of Wall Street, your managers love to see that. You know, they want to see you working hard. They want to see that, you know, when you're 23, 24 years old, that that is your life. You don't care about the women. You don't care about the partying. You want to, you care about learning the business and becoming great. So that work ethic helped me really drive my career, you know, to a good point. And at some point, I felt that I really, the idea of sort of owning my own business seemed to make, be very attractive. Yeah. I was going to ask really quick on the point of, when you're kind of going up and sounds like you're, you're pushing through in your mid twenties or whatnot, I'm interested in to what the drive was for the success in the career. Cause so many of us kind of fall into that, that same rhythm, myself included of like, Hey, I'm in my mid twenties. And at the time it was work and nothing else. Everything came secondary. What was driving you for that? You know, it's a great question. And I think I was just in the environment, right? Like sometimes like, you know, when you're in this environment of everyone around you is driving themselves, you know, I lived with three friends in New York City. Like we were having the time of our lives. We we're all making a good living. We we're all doing finance. So everyone just pushing each other to be better and harder. And oh, you made that. Well, I'm going to make that. Like it was pure competition. I mean, it wasn't Wolf of Wall Street type stuff. Like, but it was. It was just pure competition in that sense of the word. And you're living in this competitive environment. That's why so many athletes do gravitate towards finance because the same lessons and the same drive that it takes you to become a really good athlete is what it takes you to, to be successful in most facets of business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was fun. Like you didn't, like you weren't waking up in the morning, like, oh, I can't have to go to work again. Like, yes, I get to go to work again. You know, it was fun. It was enjoyable. It was, it was like a frat party all day long, but it was just, you were making money this time. So it was just like, you're just in this environment and either you thrive or you die real fast. And that's how Wall Street is, right? Either they're going to kick you out really quick or you're going to make it. And so I think that's what just kind of kept driving me to move forward. And, you know, you start making pretty good living. It's fun. You know, you can live a pretty good life as a single man in, the, in, in New York City making some bucks. So, you know, it's all just kind of led to this really fun lifestyle. Yeah. And it's a great position to be in, which is why you, you were kind of alluding to the fact that you started getting the mindset of you know, maybe I should be in business for myself. So what was that transition like? I'm imagining transition into managing your own hedge fund. Sure. Well, so as you gravitate towards maybe let's call it this little cocky young guy, right? In his mid to late 20s, right? And he's doing really well. And, and maybe, you know, the Wall Street system tends to be a base plus bonus type of system. Yeah. So you get a base salary and then you get a bonus at the end of the year. And usually your bonuses, it dwarfs your salary. So like, you know, I mean, it's huge compared to what your salary is. So, you know, so you get a couple of bonuses where you're like, you know, I think I should have deserved more than that. You know, maybe I should be moving up the chain a little faster. Which, again, looking backwards now, I learned is all ego. It's all this ego that we get driven by, right? Our ego wants to protect us and make us feel like we're really more important and better than we really are, right? Mm -hmm. so, so all of a sudden, you get this ego-driven idea like, hey, you know what? I could do this on my own. Running a business is easy. I got the work ethic. I got the connections. I got the drive. I got money in the bank. You know, you talk yourself into it. And it just seems like this amazing, like, oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. We're going to crush it. You know, hedge funds in the mid to late 90s were just starting to become popular. So I thought my timing was pretty good in the early 2000s when I started my first fund. 
So I was like, yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. You know, I had a great methodology for managing money. And, you know, I, I worked at the same bank for 13 years. And then I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to hit my own fund and we're going to crush it. So then where did it take the turn? Because, I mean, this is the story that I think a lot of us live through, go through. And a lot of our listeners are probably in the thick of right now of you got the work ethic. You have an environment of some competitive folks around you, which is putting wind in your sails, right? You're moving up the chain. You decide, okay, maybe I deserve to go up a little faster. Maybe I could do my own thing here. This is a good opportunity. That door's cracked open. Let's blow it open, go for it, and really push forward. At what point does it become, ooh, I'm in over my head here? <laughs> you know, I'm happy to say it took quite a while. Like, I was doing great. <laughs> you know, I launched my first fund in 2005, and the market was just really good. You know, we'd gotten past the tech bubble in the early, in late 90s, 2000s. And because of sort of the way I look at the market, the stock market, I kind of realized that things weren't so good that, you know, that maybe there was over leverage going on in the real estate world and, and, and in the finance institutions. So I was so actually saw this really, 2008 coming. I did. I saw it coming. Yes. To a degree. I didn't know it was going to be as bad as it was, but 2008 was a big year for me. It was a great year. I made a lot of money that year. So much so that I really needed to just take a break in 09. Like I kind of went into sort of a quasi semi-retirement. Now remember at this point also I'm married and I have three children. So like, and I'm living in the suburbs now. So life is really dialed down quite a bit for me. Like I went from sort of this hard charge and party guy. And now here I am more settled in and very happy to be in that situation. Right. So I was still managing the fund. In 2010, I got an offer to merge my fund with somebody else, which seemed like a really great business opportunity for me. This guy had really done very well, very successful, sold a big business to uh, Royal Bank of Canada and had a lot of good stuff going on in, in, in his world. So I figured, okay, why not partner up with someone like that? Maybe we can build a behemoth here. And it was really a bad decision, you know, and it was a decision where, you know, I lost seven figures in money. And, you know, of course that takes a hit and a hurt, you know, but it really didn't dampen me too much, but also things weren't so good on the home front. You know, my wife and I were, let's say coexisting, you know, we weren't really arguing. We weren't really having a good time. We were just kind of apathetic towards each other, which is a shame. It's a, it's a bad place to be. So life, you know, you make all this money. And of course you think, okay, now I got it made in the shade. You know, I paid off my mortgage, the kids college is taken care of all this stuff looks amazing, but yet I'm so unfulfilled, mm-hmm. you know, like, where is that fulfillment? Where is that passion still? Where is that drive? You know, I kind of lost all that. So a lot of this emotional neglect from my childhood started manifesting into these people-pleasing ways and, and really not taking care of myself. And ultimately, I've learned that I was really following not the journey that I wanted. I was following what I thought other people expected of me in my journey. Yeah. And all these things start kind of hitting you, boom, boom, boom. And it's like, you know, these, like, where's my life going, right? I'm unfulfilled. My marriage is okay. Just, you know, barely okay. And now, now all of a sudden, my business life is starting to falter a little bit. And you really start to look inside. You're like, wow, so something's wrong here. Something's not right. Like it was yeah. all easy for a long time. All of a sudden that climb up the wall is getting a lot harder. You know, there's a lot slippery slope right now and I'm fighting, I'm fighting everything. So just an introspective question really quick, because losing that amount of money must be hard. But from what I'm hearing in terms of like the growth and the work ethic from a young age up until now, there's been that growth. And I think a lot of us, we chase that. And it sounded like when the business life started to falter, almost, at least from my experience, sometimes 
if I identify with something and that starts to falter, it forces me to look at other areas of my life to look for the definition of who I am. Because you want to hold on to what's working. You want to hold on to what's good. Like when my work wasn't doing well and I was transitioning to be an anchor and I was learning a new skill, I needed to find confidence in myself and something. And I found that in the gym. So I could still identify as someone who works out while I was repairing my skill set at work. But it sounds like you're kind of looking at other areas and you're like, man, I'm realizing that something's missing and you're identifying that work isn't what fulfills you. It's just kind of what's been kind of, I guess, numbing numbing the emotion all along the way? You know, when you grow up in a, in a town, in an area where you're kind of expected to do well, right? Like you have all the trappings of being able to do well. You know, I went to a private high school and I didn't have any debt when I came out of college. Like you just expected to be doing well. And you do identify with that. The word identify that you use is so important and it becomes who you are. It becomes your identity. And when that starts to get chipped away at, it's really, it's scary to a degree. Like you're like, well, who am I? Like, I've been living this life this whole way, and it hasn't been my authentic self. It's been this person who has wanted to please his parents and please his spouse and make money for the kids, you know, and now all of a sudden, like, what do I do now? I think it was like a shock to my system, you know, and then the spiral just kind of kept going emotionally. And then my marriage failed. And I was actually the one who asked for the divorce because I was so unhappy. But again, you know, I was always looking outside of myself for all of this validation. You know, I was looking to other people to validate me. And I just learned it's just no way to live. And, you know, even in Wall Street, like I would move around within finance from from area to area. And obviously, ultimately, I went to my own my own career. But it's like, if you bring that same miserable attitude to a different job, you know, that same unhappiness... (laughs) Sure, maybe those first three months or six months, it's like it's like the honeymoon period all over again. But eventually, it's that same attitude again. It's going to creep up. So that's why we have to work on ourselves. You know, we got to work with within ourselves because we want to bring our best self to everything that we do, whether it's going to the gym or whether it's going to work or whether it's being with your spouse or your significant other. You want to be that best person and you want to be the best person for yourself so you can bring it to them. And I wasn't. I was a shell of a man at that point. Really, I was. Yeah. So just listening to how you explain everything, and I had to write that down, like we need to bring our best selves and we need to work on ourselves. Obviously, that introspective work has been done. So this is a point asking for the divorce, you're realizing you're unhappy. How does this spiral into going to prison? What was that? What was that journey yeah. like exploring that fulfillment and kind of all the fruits that you, you were able to kind of feed for the first half of this podcast so far, you know, I know that that came through some hard work. Let's get dirty and dive in there, man. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's like you go through a divorce and you're already not making the kind of money you used to making, but you're still living this lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden your bank account dwindles a bit and then you go through a divorce and you end up paying, you know, a decent amount of money and your bank account dwindles some more. And, you know, you're just, Again, you're just a wreck of a human being and, and you're just always going to make bad decisions. Like you're just completely self-sabotaging. Every decision you make is just like, you know, if you want to turn right, you make a left instead. It just, everything is wrong, right? So in 2015, you know, I was being irresponsible. I wasn't taking care of my business. I was divorced. I was having a lot of fun. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, you know what? I got to pay some bills. And 
you know, you look towards, unfortunately, it's a bad place to do it, you know, and it wasn't something that I set out. It wasn't intentional. It's just like, okay, I'll take some and I'll put it back, which I did a few times. And that was kind of no one was worth the wiser. But eventually it just got to the point where it was it was too much money, you know, and I couldn't put it back. So I ended up getting a knock on the door from the FBI in 2016. So about a year after I started uh, taking some money. Man, that was quite an eye-opening experience. You know, I was actually quite lucky because most of the times they come barreling down the street in the SUV, uh, in five SUVs, guns drawn. I just had two guys knock on my door and basically they handed me the card of the prosecutor and said, have your lawyer call him and you're the target of an investigation. And, you know, my life kind of fell apart from there emotionally more. So I actually went to prison pretty quickly from there. I mean, I got it wrapped up in less than a year, which is, which is not bad in this world. I pled guilty right away. I was sentenced to 33 months in, uh, in federal prison in Otisville. What was going through your mind when the knock on the door came and they handed you that card? Yeah. You know, again, you're a little defiant. You're a little bit, you know, like this doesn't happen to me. I wasn't expecting this to happen. I figured I could do it. I figured I'd get away with it, put it all back. I've been successful in the past. So, you know, for me, you know, putting back $700,000 shouldn't have been that big a deal. You know, it wasn't a lot of money to me, but I didn't have it at the time. So it was a tremendous amount of money. You know, so yeah. if it's $1 more than you don't, than you don't have, it's, it's too much money. But I think I, the whole time I was like defiant. I think I was cocky. I think I was arrogant. And I don't, I think I was probably disrespectful to them, you know, mm. but it was also very humbling too. Like you realize that all the lies and all the, the half truths and everything are going to come out. And it's really, it's terrifying. It's really terrifying. But at the same time, it's also like, okay, I can breathe now. And I'm not dead. And you know what? It's all going to get out there and somehow I'll survive. So you can kind of flip it around a little bit. And they always say the guilty ones sleep well at night because yeah. after they get caught, because they don't have to think about all the cover-ups anymore. So... Yeah. <laughs> so what was that transition like? I mean, you, you mentioned 33 months and I imagine there's a lot of time to reflect and I'm interested to know when that shift started to happen, some of the conversations sure. you had with yourself, uh, maybe some others around you, but yeah. So growing up when I did, there was this big movement in the nineties of this really big personal development, self-esteem movement headed up by guys like Tony Robbins and Jim Rohn and, and Wayne Dyer and, and I was a big fan of those movement. I mean, I was a big motivational guy, like always. And it's even today, I love to listen to motivational videos and it gets me pumped up to run or go to the gym or whatever. So I surrendered to prison in September of 2017. And I was really hopeful. I came in there with this positive attitude. I'm like, you know what? Let's figure it out. They must have some programs to get you going. And the answer is they don't. <laughs> That's really the sad thing about it is your rehabilitation is like a millionth on their list of things that they care about, you know? So that stark realization, like that I'm going to still have to do this on my own was pretty hard hitting, but it was that background that I had in some of that personal development, even though I didn't really, wasn't really able to use it when life was really spiraling. Once I got to prison and look, I mean, please, anyone listening out there, I'm not saying that prison is a good thing. It's not, but without a cell phone and with some time to really think. And I was in a place where I wasn't really worried about my physical security. So, so let me put it that way. Also, you have an opportunity to really like dig deep into that, 
noggin of yours. You know, you really have a, to go deep into those recesses that most people don't want, don't want to look into. Yeah. So what started it for me was, I was like, all right, so how am I going to begin? Because I didn't know how to begin, right? How am I going to begin? So I said, okay, every one of these books I've ever read always talks about gratitude. So let's start there. So I started going on these gratitude walks every day. So for an hour, I would walk around, I would walk around the facility, and I would just say anything that I could think of to be grateful for. You know, I'm grateful for the blood that's rushing through my body. I'm grateful that I actually do have a place to sleep and I do have a hot meal every night. You know, I'm thankful that my children are still healthy and whatever. Anything you can think of be thankful for. And it took me like two months of like doing this every single day. But all of a sudden, I wasn't doing gratitude. I was being grateful. I was like being the thing you want to be. Did you ever hear that phrase? Like, you know, you want to be it. You don't want to do it, right? Yeah. And I was literally like, I loved it. I was so grateful for everything. And I was even grateful for being in prison because it gave me the time to think and it gave me the time to work on my life and fix it. Yeah. And I was reading books. I was digging into books. Like I wasn't wasting a minute while I was there. So that was an important part of it too. And I imagine, I mean, are these all self-help books? Did you know the direction you were going in or did this kind of start out like gratitude or whatnot? Or were you gung-ho on like, you know, this, I'm going to use this time to reshape, rebuild, and reflect. I was gung-ho about that, but I had no idea how to do it. Mm. Zero. So I kind of like, did you ever hear this saying, like, let go and let God kind of yeah. thing? Like, Jesus, I just let go. <laughs> let go. You take the wheel. Exactly. Like, you figure it out. I'm just here. I'm a passenger, right? Mm. And I started going down with this whole gratitude thing, and it was wonderful, and it was freeing, and it was amazing. And I started reading books and I read, I read this book by Nathaniel Brandon called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And it's really the first time I got to understand what self-esteem meant. I've heard it all along the way, but to really understand it. And, you know, part of the reason why the self-esteem movement failed is because we thought self-esteem was everyone gets a trophy, you know, and that is the exact opposite of self-esteem. Self-esteem is losing and still knowing that you're good with inside of yourself and that you're going to continue to fight, fight the good fight, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's always the wonderful, like we love the story of Rocky because he gets knocked down all the time, right? If he started winning from the Rocky one, we wouldn't have cared so much, mm-hmm. right? So we love the person who gets knocked down, but gets back up again. So you can't get your self-esteem from somebody else. It can only come from yourself. So gratitude started it. I started learning about self-esteem. And you know what? When I learned about self-esteem, it was like this like thousand pound gorilla was lifted off of my back. Mm-hmm. Like, I get it now. Because you know what? When you're a relatively smart person and you F up your life, you're like, what did I do? How did I do it? And you realize that there was this emotional trauma that I went through as a kid and it manifested itself all the way up to the age of 48 when I surrendered to prison. I was just thinking the way you just framed that was, you know, when someone's smart and a lot of our listeners, I'd imagine, are are smart, we try and figure our way through what we did or what happened. We try and use logic. And what you just hit on so perfectly was like, you had to feel your way to heal, not use the logic. We focus so much on our head and we use our head to try and break or figure out what we did to get where we are. But we're ignoring the emotions that were behind our actions. And it's almost like succumbing to the feelings and the emotion is what helps the logic. Yes, a hundred percent. You know, like 
I couldn't think of my way through it at first. I had to just let it, like you said, feel my way through it. And that is why I, whenever I tell the story, I talk about gratitude because I just think that that attitude of being grateful for things primed my mind to be willing to change. Mm. You know, like I said, I was very ego driven person. I was thinking like, I'm the best. I know how to make money. I won't get caught. All these things that you fool yourself. But like when you do break it down and when you get broken down into a place like you're, you're in prison, you're just like, you know, okay, I'm stripped bare now. Like, like, let's figure it out. So I was going through these steps that are just kind of like, they were just unfolding in front of me. It was all kind of like luck. Like if you like the fact that they had this book in the library and out of the hundreds of books, that's the one I chose to read at that moment in time. And like, you couldn't script it this way. It just had to happen by some greater power. So that's why my faith is so much stronger than it ever was. Cause I know that this wasn't me. This was some greater power. And if you want to call it God or the universe or, or whatever is important, whatever someone resonates with is fine with me. You know, there was something working there that was much, much bigger than Mark Moskowitz for sure. Yeah. And I was willing to open, be open to accept it. Yeah. Hey, and that's, that's the main part is, is accepting or as my friend would say, hey, Ted, don't block the blessing, right? Just, you know, accept the gifts that come to you. So here you are going through that journey, get to the point of release. You're leaving prison. What's the plan? Oof. You know, that's a great question because there's a lot of emotion there. And obviously it's happy emotion, but there's also this like, hey, I'm a little nervous. You know, like what if all the good work I did was really just, because I was in this sterile environment, like where I didn't have to pay bills. I didn't have to drive my kids around and get a job, like a real job and do things. So you get a little bit nervous coming out. And overall, I was happy to be leaving, I mean, of course, and I was ready to get my life back in order, but I didn't have a job. I was, thank goodness, a friend of mine offered to let me stay with her. So that worked out well, but you kind of had to start your life all over again. And I moved back to the same town that I lived in before all this happened. So, you know, you're a little bit nervous about seeing people on the street and how they're going to react. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on through your head and it does take you a long time to get acclimated again. And I'll tell you a really interesting story and remind you, I was only in there for 28 months. I was sentenced to 33, you serve 85% of your time because you get 15% for good time credit. So I was only in there for a short time relative to a lot of people. So the first time I went to the supermarket, you know, in prison, you get a commissary sheet. And on that commissary sheet, you could choose what you want to buy if you have money in your commissary account. And there's one type of peanut butter, and there's one type of jelly, and there's one type of toothpaste. And there's all. So all of a sudden, you know, I go to the supermarket, and I make this list of stuff. And uh, after about 20 minutes, I was like breaking down. I was so overwhelmed by all the choices. Huh. And it was like, just like, wow, like it really affected me. And I ended up just leaving. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the shopping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, it just was like this surreal experience. I couldn't believe that I was institutionalized after such a short amount of time. You know, I remember looking at this wall of peanut butter thinking, do I take this one? Do I take this one? Which one do I take? And it just was like, it got overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I just left. <laughs> and thank goodness, I was just a one-time thing. I'm still able to eat. You know, I was able to shop <laughs> after that. But it was just like this crazy moment, like, how does that possibly happen that you could feel so frustrated or so uh, paralyzed by just that one incident, you know, but, but since I've been out, you know, I've been out two years now and every day is just amazing. You know, the perspective that I have, you know, I don't get upset 
sitting in traffic. I'm thankful for it that I get to sit in traffic. Yeah. You know, I had gotten actually a pretty good job after after I got out. And then Corona came and wiped that job away. So now here I am on unemployment, which is no self-esteem building thing to be getting handouts, right? Yeah. But through it all, man, I kept this really just this attitude of what I have. I know that it's rock solid within me. And I know that every time there's a, what used to look like this huge stumbling block is now just an obstacle that God tells me how to figure it out. Like, go figure this out. You're a smart guy. Go figure it out. And you know what? I do. I do. We've said many times before on the podcast that the rain from the storm is the water that helps the flowers grow. And it's those hard times that give us the opportunity to improve, show up and find a solution that ironically enough, we might not use in the future, but somebody else might need. And it it really sounds like your journey is kind of giving nod to that with the introspective work that you've done, the discovery on on the meaning of self-esteem, the way you framed it. I love that. And as probably intended by God, the universe, or whoever kind of put this path in front of you, you're giving those gifts forward now with your book, Within. Talk a little bit about what you hope folks get from it. And uh, as we kind of come up to the end of the podcast here, what do you hope folks get from this book and take away from it? Well, the title is Within because I can tell you from experience. And as I said before, I've been to the mountaintop. I've had the riches. I've had the financial wealth. And I've also been to the bottom. And the happiness that we have will only derive from being happy with who we are when we look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the title of the book is Within because I know that we have all the power within ourselves to be the best we can be. We don't have to look for other people to validate us. We don't have to look to fancy cars and fancy houses. But I'm the first one to say I like material possession. There's nothing wrong with having that but you have to have it for the right reasons, not because you're trying to impress other people, but just because it's it's what you like. It's part of your value that you're willing to expend money on. So the book really chronicles primarily most of my time in prison and the lessons that I've learned and a little bit of like what I talked about in the, my 20s, but for the most part, it's those couple of years there. And it discusses gratitude and self-esteem and taking responsibility. There's a chapter in there called Extreme Responsibility, which once your self-esteem is healthy, you can take responsibility for that. So I think when we stop looking to others to make us happy, we become the happiest we can be. And that's when you really can get into real relationships. Like I look back, I didn't trust anybody. I had this wall up the whole time because I was afraid that people would, wouldn't like the real me. Now, obviously I'm doing podcasts like this and I'm writing a book and I'm just letting it all hang out. So, you know, because I like me, you can like me or you don't have to like me. That's your own business. But I know that I'm a good person in my heart. And I know that I have a great heart and I'm trying my best to be the best man that I can be every day. Yeah. So I'd say that's probably the overriding lesson of the book. Man, Mark, it's an amazing journey. I love that you're, you're pouring yourself out there. You're a beautiful person inside and out. And I'd really love for our audience to have an opportunity to follow you, keep up with you and connect with you and even get the book when it comes out. So how can folks kind of stay in contact? Well, I have a website. It's markjmoskowitz.com. J, just the letter J. And then I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to reach out to me. So if you just look for my name on LinkedIn, right now I have a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo for the book Within. So if you if you go to Indiegogo and type within Mark Moskowitz, you'll find that. And you can love the support if you could afford that or or uh, at least share it with your, with your audience would be great. And those are the best places to reach me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll have those links in the show notes. So folks that are listening right now, go ahead, open up the iTunes app, Spotify app, Audible, whatever you're listening to us on, we're on all the platforms. So definitely just open that up, hit the links, and it'll take you straight to uh, Mark's website and the uh, GoFundMe and support and put wind in his sails for the success. If you like the story and what he had to share, let's push him forward towards that next chapter. Pun intended, by the way. Mark, Thank you so much for sharing with us today. It's been a great journey and we appreciate you sharing your lessons from it so, so we can kind of maybe take some of those notes and not have to go through some of some of the hardships ourselves. Ted, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to recap some of the gems that you left along the way for a lot of our listeners. I know folks are either driving or maybe they're cleaning the house talking to friends halfway in and out during this podcast. So I want to make sure that you guys got all the value that was packed in the past 30 minutes here. As I took notes, not everybody has a pen and paper, but the tribe of runners, I wrote down tribe of runners. Cause as Mark mentioned, you know, in the, in the twenties and in the early portions of his career, like many of us, you find that, that tribe of people who are out there pushing forward, going for it, trying to be successful. And there's nothing wrong with that because that helps you get to a, a certain point in life. Watch out for ego, though, because I think a lot of us, myself included, fell into that at a young age of just thinking, you know, maybe I deserve more. Maybe I should get get this a little faster. And when we start to take shortcuts is when we start to stumble and it's when we start to kind of do a disservice to ourselves. So watch out for ego. And then following what others wanted, that's something that resonated with me as a people pleaser myself. I've fallen victim to looking for my verification in others, looking for my self-esteem in others. And I do that by pleasing, by making appointments and keeping it, even though I probably shouldn't have, even though I would rather not, I would put up with certain things just to please people. And that's not a way to live, especially when you want to navigate and create your own life. Looking to be validated is a dangerous thing if you're looking for that from others. Within, as the book is soon to come out, Mark is mentioning that it's all within you. And it's going to take maybe starting with gratitude, maybe learning how to build your self-esteem and understanding that it's all within you. And that was amazing, by the way, the fact that you don't build self-esteem by giving participation trophies. You build self-esteem through failure and still fighting and still pushing forward. So anyone that's listening, that's going through a storm right now, I want you to know I believe in you. I know that you can get up, dust yourself off. You might be a little wet, but you'll get through this storm. You'll get your rainbows and then maybe buy an umbrella because there's always going to be a storm coming. So I hope you guys got a lot of value from this episode. If you know someone that can maybe learn from this, we'd appreciate you sharing it with them and pass this message forward. Leave us a rating. Let us know how we're doing because the only way we improve is with your feedback. And be sure to subscribe so you can get a new episode each and every single week. We truly appreciate all the subscriptions and all the sharing that you guys do for us. And if you really love the podcast and you'd like to support and hear more from some of our guests, including Mark and others, we do have a Patreon page that you could subscribe to for as little as $1 a month. So we would really appreciate that too. As always, guys, thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you enjoyed it. And as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain. But you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow.